If you would, and turn to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. We continue this morning in our series of sermons in Matthew's Gospel. We have arrived at a crucial section of the Gospel and of the entire Bible. That's often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. I introduced the sermon a couple of weeks ago. We return to our study in the sermon now. And uh, the plan is to spend uh, several weeks, even months, in this sermon as it is so full of rich truth and encouragement and instruction uh, for the Lord's people. This morning, I just want to read the first three verses of Matthew chapter 5. Please follow along as I read. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went upon the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray once more. Our Father in heaven, as we come now before your word, and particularly before these statements of our Lord, about those that are truly blessed, uh, we pray, Father, that you would acquaint us with that blessing. We pray, Father, that you would teach us true poverty of spirit, and you would give to us the kingdom of heaven. Help us to understand your word, and help us more to live it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If a particularly artful and thoughtful and biblically informed director wanted to portray the Sermon on the Mount in a film, in a movie, I imagine that one of the scenes might have gone like this, that we would see Jesus Uh, that he would, seeing the crowds, ascend on a mountain, that he would take his seat. Uh, We'd see him calling his disciples to himself. Maybe the crowds were kind of forming an outer ring, the disciples, uh, an inner ring. Uh, And then uh, we would see that he opens his mouth, about to teach them. But before he utters a word, the screen would go dark for a few moments. And then we would see superimposed on the screen these words. A millennium and a half earlier, on the plains of Moab. And then a new scene would begin. And we would see not now Jesus on the mountain, but we would see Moses before the Israelites. And we'd see him say these words, which are recorded in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, as he prophesied. He said this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, says the Lord, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. You see, 1,500 years or so, before Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, spoke this lofty teaching, gave the precepts of the kingdom, it had been foretold that he would come. That there would come one day a prophet greater than Moses, a kind of new lawgiver who would come standing in God's stead. God would give to him uh, commands, certain words that he was to convey to the people. 
And the response of the people is they would hear him. They would listen to him. They would acknowledge that this is indeed the prophet of God. The word made flesh. That this is indeed the king who has come to give us the royal law. And indeed, friends, as we read the Sermon on the Mount, I think what is so striking is Jesus' authority. Uh, he, he doesn't say, you know, thus saith the Lord. What does he say? He says, I say unto you. In fact, this is the impression that was left upon the crowds, his hearers. We read at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The scribes were the interpreters of the law. Uh, they might have been people like myself who would stand up and preach sermons. But the people who heard Jesus preach and teach uh, uh, assessed a qualitative difference in the way he spoke and the way other human men spoke, like the scribes. In fact, in another place, in John chapter 7, on another occasion, uh, we have recorded there Jesus in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. And he's speaking there, he's teaching there. We read in verse 37, on the great and final day of the feast, Jesus stood up and uh, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There had been sent to that feast uh, certain officers who were supposed to arrest him. They were sent there by the high priests and the Pharisees. Uh, and the officers were there hearing Jesus speak. And they return empty-handed. Uh, to the high priests and to the Pharisees. And they say to them, uh, why didn't you make the arrest? He was right there. You had him. Why didn't you take Jesus into custody? Do you remember what the officers said? They said, no man ever spoke as this man. In other words, you, you didn't see what we saw. You didn't hear what we heard. This man spoke as God. And we dare not take him into custody. Jesus spoke with such striking authority. As we begin our exposition of this sermon this morning, I encourage you to watch for this, to observe this, the extraordinary authority with which Jesus speaks. Now, briefly, by way of review, I want to remind you of two points we considered last time uh, when, with respect to this sermon, uh, two weeks ago when we began the series in the Sermon on the Mount, just two points that we considered in that sermon. First of all, I just want to remind you, and I'll seek to remind us regularly, that the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon for disciples about discipleship. This sermon was given by the Lord for disciples, those who have already been born again and have been made new by the Spirit of God. We want to perpetually have this in our minds. This is not about how you come into a state of favor with God or how you become born again. This is for those who already are in a state of God's favor, those who already have God as their Father, those who already have been born again and have been made citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We must get the order right. It is new birth and then the Sermon on the Mount. It's regeneration and then the precepts of the kingdom. And Martin Lloyd-Jones commenting on this passage says this, nothing shows me my absolute need of the new birth. And of the Holy Spirit and His work within, so much as the Sermon on the Mount. These beatitudes crush me to the ground. They show me my utter helplessness. Were it not for the new birth, I am undone. Read and study it. Face yourself in the light of it. It will drive you to see your ultimate need of the rebirth and the gracious operation of the Holy Spirit. Uh, for those here who are outside of Christ, I'm praying that this happens for you. 
over these next several weeks as we go through uh, this sermon. Uh, John Stott says this, Only a belief in the necessity and the possibility of a new birth can keep us from reading the Sermon on the Mount with either foolish optimism or hopeless despair. Jesus spoke the sermon to those who were already His disciples and thereby also the citizens of God's kingdom and the children of God's family. The high standards He set are appropriate only to such. We do not indeed, could not achieve this privileged status by attaining Christ's standards. Rather, by attaining His standards, or at least approximating to them, we give evidence of what, by God's free grace and gift, we already are. That's the first reminder. This is a sermon for disciples, for those of us here who are the children of God. And it's a sermon about how to follow Christ faithfully. The second idea I want to remind us of is that it is a sermon about what life in the kingdom of heaven is meant to look like. We recognize that God reigns and rules over all. But the Bible also speaks of this special redemptive kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven, it's often called. It is that arena in which Christ reigns and rules in the hearts of men and women in a special way. And Matthew, so far as we've seen in this gospel, has slowly been introducing this subject of the kingdom to us, especially in the latter verses of Matthew 4. You've got to look back maybe on that previous chapter. We saw in Matthew 4, 17 first that in Jesus, the presence of the kingdom has come. The presence of the kingdom has come. What did Jesus say? First, spoken words uh, publicly. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is near you. It has come. It is imminent. He announced the presence of the kingdom. Then we see in verse 23 of chapter 4 that in Jesus, the proclamation of the kingdom has begun. Namely, the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. Look at verse 23 of chapter 4. Now, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's announced its presence. It's here. It's upon you. And he's proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. And then, in the latter part of 23 and through verse 24, we learn that in Jesus, the power of the kingdom has appeared. Look at verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Now we're going to talk more about the miracles of Jesus and what they involve, what we're meant to glean from those miracles. When I was a kid, I thought that the main thing we were to get from the miracles was to see that Jesus had divine power. Well, that's partially true. Uh, But what Jesus is doing through his miracles, casting out demons, healing people, uh, restoring uh, people's of physical health, their eyesight, and other such things, raising the dead, is he showing us what the power of the kingdom looks like. It's sort of like the momentary inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven on this world. For in heaven there will be no more death and no diseases. And when Jesus, the king of that kingdom, is around, what happens? Death is undone. Sickness and disease is beat back. The powers of darkness fall and tremble at the presence of the Lord Jesus. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we read in Matthew 12, verse 28, Jesus says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's saying the power of of the kingdom has come. In these miracles I'm doing, I'm displaying that this kingdom comes with a kind of power. So we have in Jesus the presence of the kingdom, the proclamation of the kingdom, and the power of the kingdom. This theme of the kingdom of heaven is beginning to take shape and pick up momentum. Well, what do we have then in the Sermon 
on the mount. We have the precepts of the kingdom. Christ comes now as the king to give the royal law. He comes to tell us what life in His kingdom is like. How do the citizens of the kingdom of heaven live? What do they look like? What sorts of laws and virtues pervade that community of disciples who are part of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus? So we come this one to begin our actual exposition of the sermon to learn about these precepts of the kingdom. And again, we read now Matthew 5 in verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, so here's God's prophet now, the greater Moses, the new lawgiver, God's Messiah, the Christ has come, the King is here, he has announced the kingdom, he has displayed its power, now he comes to announce its precepts, to give something of his kingdom manifesto. And what's the first thing he says? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's the big program. Here's the kingdom agenda. Here's the platform for Jesus' new people. His kingdom that even now is breaking upon the world. And he starts by commending the poor in spirit. Uh, Now we begin to see how strikingly countercultural the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, will be. As Monty Python says, now for something completely different. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I encourage you to think about this. Go and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 on your own and just appreciate how unexpected Jesus is. Just how unpredictable He is how unmake-upable He is, Uh, how much He's unlike us, how much better He is than we are, how much more are His ways good than our ways. We'll consider Matthew 5, verse 3 this morning under three main headings. Uh, Number one, defining what it means to be poor in spirit. Number two, illustrating what it means to be poor in spirit. And number three, the blessing promised to those who are poor in spirit. Consider with me in the first place, defining what it means to be poor in spirit. And we'll spend most of our time, I think, on this point. Defining what it means to be poor in spirit. We read first in Matthew 5, verse 3, the first of these beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, that word blessed is going to be used throughout these beatitudes again and again. Each one will start with that word blessed. In fact, that's essentially what the word beatitude means, state of blessedness. Uh, We may use that word blessed in all kinds of ways ourselves. Uh, Someone here, maybe you own your own business, you may say, the Lord has blessed my business. And by that you may mean that He has given you material prosperity in your business, He's given you lots of work, He's blessed your business. Or or we may say, uh, I've been blessed uh, with great athletic abilities. I would not say that, but some of you might say that. Uh, I've been blessed with great physical gifts uh, to run or to play basketball or other type athletic things. Uh, In the South, we like to say, bless your heart. Uh, And by that, we mean you're probably not so bright. (laughs) We use that word in all kinds of different ways, right? Well, the word is used in different ways in the Bible as well. Not really as Southerners might use that phrase, but in other ways. Uh, Often in the Bible, it is used to refer 
through the bestowal of some kind of grace or gift from God. Uh, so the Lord may bless someone with long life. We might read that in the Scriptures. Or the Lord may bless someone by opening the womb and granting them many children. Uh, or blessing someone with material prosperity. But the idea here in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not less than that, but it's more than that. The word here in the Beatitudes and its repeated usages doesn't just mean blessed in the sense that you are the beneficiary of God's generosity and kindness. So that's certainly true. It's going to be true of all these Beatitudes. But the idea of blessedness, that's what I want us to see this morning, also includes the idea of having God's approval, having God's commendation. The blessed man, the blessed woman, is the man or woman whom God approves. The man who God looks upon with favor. From God's perspective, this is the life that is virtuous and noble and handsome and right. This is good in God's eyes. It's approved. It's commended. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And it concludes by saying, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That is, there are these two ways you can live. One is owned of God, blessed of God, known of God, commended, approved. It is right. He upholds it. And the other leads to a kind of perishing, a kind of life God will not honor. That's something of the idea here. The blessed man, the blessed woman, is the one the Lord favors, the one whom the Lord approves and commends. These virtues, the people who possess them, are those ones the Lord especially knows and owns and approves. This is right in God's eyes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He is pleased to know them and to own them. And friends, I don't know what greater incentive there could be uh, to pursuing the virtues that are commended in the Beatitudes. Now, who are those who are blessed of God? In the first place, we're told it's the poor in spirit. This is the first Beatitude that we'll consider today. We're told it's the poor in spirit who are blessed. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, I begin by telling you what it does not mean, okay? First of all, this is not a reference uh, to material or economic poverty. It's not a reference to material or economic poverty, as though those who are blessed are the economically poor. Or if you make below a certain income, or if you're paid minimum wage or something like that, if you live month to month, you're blessed of God. It's a good thing not to have money or things. It's a good thing to be economically poor. That's not the idea at all. Now, hopefully that's obvious to most of us, but there are kind of errant theologies afoot that will teach that. So like liberation theology will teach there's a kind of inherent virtue in being economically poor, materially poor. Uh, the social gospel will teach that uh, the economically poor are in a special state of favor with God. There even some today uh, who buy into kind of social justice kind of language and will act as though, well, if I, if I make very little and I have very little, that means I'm necessarily more pious or somehow more in close proximity uh, with the Lord's favor. That's not true at all from a scriptural standpoint. Uh, David says in Psalm 34, this poor man cried to you, and you delivered him from all of his troubles. He's not saying this man who makes minimum wage, or this man who's below the poverty line. He's talking about a condition of heart, a condition of spirit. So the last thing I would want, we have members here, you might qualify as far as our nation is concerned as poor, or maybe you've been poor in the past. The last thing I would want you to believe is that your material or economic poverty uh, puts you in closer proximity 
to God by virtue of just being poor. I'd say the same thing to those among us who are rich. Having lots of possessions, having lots of degrees, having lots of worldly achievements doesn't necessarily place you uh, in God's favor. I know what we're talking about here is a condition of the heart. Uh, Secondly, this is not commending, when we read blessed are the poor in spirit, it's not commending a posture of timidity or weakness of spirit or being somehow doubtful or fretful or spiritually obsequious. It's not a kind of groveling, sniveling sort of self-loathing. A poor in spirit does not mean lacking in spirit or always operating from a standpoint of sort of, I'm just a worthless nothing, nobody, I'm no good to anybody, I'm the off-scouring of all the earth. That's not the idea here. It's not talking about timidity of spirit or withdrawing or something like that. Uh, Finally, this is not a commentary on a certain personality type. The Beatitudes aren't about personality types at all. They're about Christian virtues. They're about the fruit of the Spirit. They're about the kind of character that should mark the people of God. They're about virtues that transcend personality. And maybe this is obvious, but I think it's a point that we need to hear, especially within a culture that is kind of obsessed with personality tests. Yeah, we have the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram and the Big Five and the Clifton Strengths thing. Uh, we often take those sorts of personality tests as sort of a prescriptive kind of diagnostic of who we are. And sadly, people will often use those personality tests to sort of set their moral ceiling. Oh, because I'm an ISTJ or an Enneagram 3 or whatever, uh, that means that I uh, am not very rational. I don't know if that's true. I just threw out letters and numbers. Okay? <laughs> but, but people will think, okay, well, and they'll begin to make excuses for themselves. Uh, my personality type doesn't lend itself really toward this or that. Uh, some people will think this way about often Christian virtues. I'm not really a peacemaker type. Well, yeah, your personality test may say that, but if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God at work within you, and you can change. And your personality type doesn't dictate your moral ceiling. It doesn't discern or, or, or reveal to you what your prospects of sanctification are. Uh, candidly, and take this what it's worth, this is I, not the Lord, say to you, uh, it might be helpful for some of us to think about our personality type a whole lot less. And we just stop thinking about the whole introvert, extrovert thing. I know at its best, maybe it gives us insight into ourselves, but don't let that overly inform how you see your prospects for holiness your prospects for virtue. By the Spirit of God, we can change. Whatever might be true about our personalities, we can be sanctified in them, and we can come to honor the Lord better. The Sermon on the Mount is not about personality types. It's about Christian virtues that transcend personality. It's for introverts and for extroverts and for every Enneagram number or Myers-Briggs test. These are virtues that we can pursue. All right, that's what being poor in spirit is not. But positively then, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? And here it is. Poverty of spirit is a humble and lowly posture toward God. It is a humble and lowly posture toward God. It is to be humble in spirit, lowly in heart, contrite and penitent with respect to our sin and with respect to God. It is a humble posture of the heart that is born of our experiential awareness of the perfect holiness and greatness of God our frailty and finitude as His creatures, 
the exceeding wickedness of our own sins, and the beauty of God's free grace offered freely to those who come to Christ in repentance and faith. To be poor in spirit is to see ourselves as we truly are before God, unworthy, impure, morally poor, dependent on God, no sense of entitlement, no sufficiency in ourselves, nothing to offer Him, dependent only and always on His grace. That is what it means to be poor in spirit. It requires that we see God as He truly is and ourselves as we truly are. Not some fiction about ourselves, not some dream about ourselves. We see ourselves as we truly are. And more than that, we see the person and work of Christ as our only hope of salvation. Our only hope of bridging the gap between so great a God and such a worm as I. The man who is poor in spirit knows he has nothing in himself. He knows like Paul in Romans 7 that in him dwells no good thing. And he depends upon God and God alone for life, forgiveness, and salvation. I think what it means to be poor in spirit is very well described. There's a number of passages in the Old Testament. There's a significant Old Testament background uh, even to the word that's used in Matthew 5 verse 3. I think we have it described for us in Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Just a few chapters later in Isaiah 66, we read this, but this is the one to whom I will look, says the Lord, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. I don't know why um, my mind kept going to uh, Mary in Luke chapter 1 and her Magnificat. You know, there are sections of uh, the church in the world today that will go to the Magnificat as a way to sort of exalt Mary above everybody else. And even in some cases, you know, leading people to pray to Mary. Of course, we don't believe that as a Protestant church. But what Mary comments on, what sort of overwhelms her and her Magnificat, is actually her humility of spirit, her lowliness as a creature and as one who's received God's grace. She says, uh, Luke 1 verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. I don't think she's saying, I mean, she was probably a teenage girl, probably didn't have a lot of material prosperity, but she's not talking about those things primarily. She's talking about a posture of the heart, the humble estate of the Lord's servant. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. All these passages, I think, help us understand something of what it means to be poor in spirit. Outside of Scripture, I think the very best description uh, that I have ever read, at least, of what it means to be poor in spirit uh, is contained in the words of Augustus Toplady's great hymn, Rock of Ages. He says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's a good description of the man or woman who is poor in spirit. Uh, little by little, uh, through uh, pastoral uh, wiliness and subterfuge, 
I'm trying to get our church to really love the hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. Uh, it's not so much a well-known hymn uh, anymore today, but it's a beautiful hymn. Beautiful hymn. We sing it here every now and again. I always try to get us to sing it a cappella. I don't know, that kind of helps sometimes. And um, the reason I want us to love that hymn is because I want us more and more to love and pursue the posture of the third verse of that song that says this, Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in Thee I find. Raise the fallen, cheer the faint. Heal the sick and lead the blind. Just and holy is Thy name. I am all unrighteousness. False and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. That's something of what it means to be poor in spirit. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. I wonder, friend, does that describe your view of yourself? Does that describe how you came in here this morning? Do you ever feel this way in your own private devotions at home as you're reading the Word and praying to God, or while singing God's praises as we have this morning, or in coming to the Lord's table. Uh, friends, this is the essence of the man or woman who is poor in spirit. I am nothing without God. I am nowhere without His grace. The essence of poverty of spirit is a humble, lowly, upward-looking hope to God. I know in my heart, in my spirit, how poor and wretched and needy I am, and thus I come to God as a spiritual beggar. This is the one we read who is blessed and approved and honored in God's eyes, and to such belong the most grand and glorious rewards. Now, I hardly need to say this, but you notice, don't you, how much this perspective flies in the face of our rampant sort of self-esteem culture. You recognize this, right? Everything culturally and socially in marketing and in advertising and entertainment and social media, all these sorts of things, uh, you are being encouraged to have the highest possible sense of self-worth, self-sufficiency, uh, self-esteem, self-confidence. You are number one, and, and, and people who have discounted you, who don't think you're number one, well, you need to just cut them out of your life. Uh, so you hear it in the commercials, don't you deserve to spend your money the way you want to spend it? Well, come to our brokerage firm. We'll, we'll you know, uh, 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 don't you uh, deserve a vacation? Well, call this number today. Uh, even in social media, I know not everybody's on social media, but if you make your Facebook profile or your Instagram profile, or I don't know if those are still popular, if they're popular in my generation, uh, you will see them sort of trying to trump you up as much as possible. Uh, so you can kind of customize all these little features of who you are and sort of put forward let's be honest, the kind of fiction about ourselves. It was funny, uh, I forced myself to watch a few episodes of the Netflix documentary on uh, uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Um, I'm an Anglophile, and as such, Meghan Markle's kind of public enemy number one to us, okay? Because she disrespects the institution. Well, and, and, and it's interesting, Meghan Markle was talking about how she was going to get to know Harry, Prince Harry. And she says... Um, I didn't want to just know what people are saying about him. If you really want to know a person, you go to their social media profile. That's where you really find out who they are. Now, that's the exact opposite of where you go. 
That's where all the projection happens. That's where I got it trumped up, sort of this great and spectacular person. I can crop all the photos. I can only include the things about myself that I think are praiseworthy and attractive, and I can leave out all my baggage. This is the way our culture encourages us to think about ourselves. And there are lots of people living out a kind of fiction online about who they are. In all of it, you're encouraged to think uh, uh, that you are the best possible thing since sliced bread, uh, that your self-esteem and your self-worth are the most important things that you have. They should be at the highest possible pitch at all times. And if ever you stray from that view of yourself, you need some kind of therapy or something like that. I just think of this, friends. No one puts the Beatitudes uh, on their job profile. You're not going to find it on LinkedIn. No one's going to stipulate these virtues in a, a job interview. You know, what, what are some of your strengths? Well, I'm, I'm poor in spirit. Uh, I mourn. Uh, I'm given over to mourning. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very meek. And I'm sure that's something you're looking for. Uh, I, I, I uh, uh, am ready to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. In fact, if someone strikes me on one cheek, I turn to him the other. Uh, uh, I have the tendency, if someone wants to go with me one mile, I go with him two. But if he takes my cloak, I give him my tunic also. Uh, you see, none of these things are things that the world values. If we're going to live in this way, we must expect this is countercultural. Uh, the, the Lord is playing a different kind of game here. He's playing chess as the world is playing checkers. He's calling us something higher and better and purer and more good than these false and fako virtues that our culture offers to us. Uh, and this, sometimes you'll hear this uh, in, in the way the gospel is preached today, to accommodate the way in which people think about their self-esteem. I've talked about this before, but so often the way the gospel is offered, it's kind of in a way to kind of trump up our view of ourselves. So, so it's all about, you know, do you feel discounted? Do you feel unworthy? Uh, do you feel that people have put you down? Well, you know, Jesus won't, won't do that to you. He sees that you're worthy. Oh, he sees how, how, how great you really are, and he wants you on his team. Oh, friends, is that the gospel? I don't think so. But the gospel, if it is the gospel, will first humble us and will reveal us, expose us to ourselves, and finally, maybe for the first time, uh, tell us the truth about ourselves, that we are broken and sinful and frail and needy. We are naked in need of dress. We are helpless in need of grace. We are false and full of sin. God alone has grace for us. Now, don't misunderstand this. This is not the Lord taking some kind of pleasure in watching people grovel in self-loathing and self-hatred. That's not what this is at all. The Lord wants to see us as poor in spirit. He wants us to see ourselves as poor in spirit in order that He would save us. He encourages us in Isaiah 57, 15 to pursue a lowly and contrite spirit that He might revive the spirit of the lowly. Revive the humble and contrite in spirit. He humbles us to raise us up and to lift us up and to bring us into a truly blessed state. It's kind of like someone who has cancer. Uh, if someone actually has a cancer diagnosis, you don't try to hide that from them. What you need to do is have a more positive view of yourself. Just think of yourself as someone who doesn't have cancer and live out that reality. No. A loving and good physician is going to give us that diagnosis. He's going to tell us the bad news. And then he's going to tell us how we can be healed. Well, that's the way the Lord approaches us. The poor in spirit look up to God and they find him. And they are the ones to whom he looks. 
And he rewards them. He fills them with good things. He showers his grace upon them. He gives food to the hungry and living water to those who thirst. He gives rest to those who labor and are heavy laden. He gives himself and his kingdom to the poor in spirit. That's point number one. And as I said, we spend the most time there. Consider with me now point number two. Illustrating what it means to be poor in spirit. Please turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. Luke 18, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Maybe keep your hand in Matthew 5. It's one thing to talk about being poor in spirit. I've endeavored to do that to kind of explain what it looks like to be poor in spirit. But I want us now to see three living, breathing examples of what it looks like to be poor in spirit. So turn to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 18. First, we'll see it illustrated in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We'll see poverty of spirit illustrated in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke 18, follow along as I read, beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. This is the opposite of poverty of spirit. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now we'll see poverty of spirit illustrated. But the tax collector, verse 13, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You can see the man in your mind's eye, right? He he won't go fully even into the temple. He stands afar off, and he's smoting his breast. It's a a kind of self-loathing that he experiences. He knows he's a sinner. And he can barely even look up to God. He knows what a worm he is, what a wretch he is how vile he is, and how much he needs God's mercy. And so he smotes his breast. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That man went down to his house justified. That man is blessed, for he's poor in spirit. And to men like that belong the kingdom of heaven. We'll turn back, if you would, to Luke 15, a second illustration of poverty of spirit. Luke 15, this is the very well-known parable of the prodigal son. Perhaps you know how it begins, that uh, there's a man, a certain father who has two sons, and uh, one son comes to him one day, asks for his inheritance early in advance on his inheritance. He's tired of working for his father, and he goes off into the far country and lives in licentiousness and debauchery and sin. And then we read this in Luke 15, verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. In verse 17, but when he came to himself, some of us need to come to ourselves to see ourselves as we really are. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread 
but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And this is what he does. You know the story. He's, he's, he's coming toward his father. His father's on the front porch looking out for his son. He sees him even afar off. He runs after the son and embraces him. And the son makes this confession. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Would you, would you maybe, though, consider making me like a hired servant? What does the Lord do? What does the Father do? Who's the picture to us, the Lord? Uh, he kills the fatted calf. He puts a robe on him. He honors his contrition and his poverty of spirit. And he brings him back into the house with all the blessings of full sonship. You see, again, illustrated what it means to be poor in spirit. I'm nothing. I'm not worthy. I'm not entitled to anything. I can only hope in grace and mercy if I'm to find favor. One more illustration of poverty of spirit again in Luke's gospel. Turn back to Luke 7. To Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, verse 36 through 50. We won't read all of that. We'll read most of it. It's the kind of passage we should read regularly to orient us to the greatness of the gospel, the greatness of our sin, and what God has done in His mercy to make a way of forgiveness for us. Uh, You have a certain Pharisee named Simon. He invites Jesus over for a banquet, a party. And Jesus, we gather, is kind of like the honored guest. And it seems to be Simon's expectation that Jesus would really honor Simon, uh, the Pharisee, that he would somehow be chuffed by the invite and would commend Simon. We read this in verse 38. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping. I forgot a little bit of context. A woman enters the house somehow. Read of her, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Isn't that amazing? They assumed if he knew she was a sinner, he wouldn't want to be around them. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Verse 41. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, a denarii is a day's wage, and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. Then he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What's the picture here? That one individual who is self-righteous, confident in himself, that he had all that was needed, all the prerequisites, 
to be the Lord's favorite. Here's a woman who has nothing, not assuming anything. And she falls on her face. She weeps over Jesus' feet. She washes His feet with her tears, with her hair. Jesus recognizes she's the one who's forgiven. She knows. She sees herself for what she is. She knows that she's a sinner. And she knows in Jesus only is there salvation for her and forgiveness for her. And it is her faith in such a Savior that makes her well. My friend, do you see yourself as the publican, the tax collector? As the prodigal son? As the woman who was forgiven much? If you don't, you probably don't know much about what it means to be poor in spirit. I'll tell you, one of the best ways uh, you can test this in your own heart is some self-examination. Just think to yourself about the most deeply held narratives that you believe about yourself. The kind of narratives we construct of our lives, the sort of interpretation we do on our lives. Think of your most deeply held narratives and ask yourself, are you always the good guy? Are you always the protagonist? Always the noble victim in the narratives you construct for yourself? Are you ever the villain? Are you ever the antagonist in need of redemption? Are you ever the one who has failed God and failed others? Or are you always the righteous one? Always the one who's being discounted? Always the hero of the narrative? Or do you see in your life the ways you have failed God and man? Have you ever seen yourself as the villain in the narratives you believe about yourself? The common trait of these three cases from Luke's gospel that I've set before you is that they all saw themselves at some point as the villain, as the antagonist, not as the noble hero, but as the villain that needed to be redeemed, as the criminal who needed mercy, as the sinner who needed to be saved. All of them understood what it was like to be poor in spirit. All right, thirdly and finally now. Number one, defining what it means to be poor in spirit. Number two, illustrating what it means to be poor in spirit. Thirdly and finally, the blessing promised to those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friends, I'll tell you, the joys of being poor in spirit are many. Uh, You won't live your life with a sense of entitlement all the time. You'll go through life being much more uh, graceful and gracious. Uh, For the poor in spirit, the glass is always half full and life is sweeter. Uh, You will be perpetually surprised by grace and not by sin. Uh, You will usually have more joy than most other people who don't see themselves and God aright. But Jesus doesn't go to any of those things as the great reward of being poor in spirit, as true as all those things are. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To them belongs that arena in which God dwells, where His gracious and benevolent reign and rule overshadows all. It is the poor in spirit who become citizens of His kingdom. They become His peculiar people, a people for His own possession. It is the poor in spirit who are made the special and loyal subjects who He delights to bring near. They are the ones who are brought under the gracious and loving reign and rule of the Lord Christ. 
And those who are poor in spirit are entitled to all the blessings and gifts and rights and rewards of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. They are the ones granted passage in the courts of splendor and access to the king's banquet table. They are the ones given the king's rich food and wine and all his good things freely to enjoy. As Spurgeon says in commentary in this verse, those who are of no account in their own eyes are of the blood royal of the universe. They alone have the principles and qualifications for a heavenly kingdom. My friend, to have the kingdom of heaven is to have everything. And most of all and best of all, it's to be given access to the king himself, uh, to sit at his feet, to love him, to adore him, to worship him, and to know him, and better still, to be known by him, to enter into fellowship and communion with the king who so graciously elevated beggars outside the court to sit now at his royal table to enjoy all his blessings and all his gifts. Christ will give himself to all those who are poor in spirit and with himself all of his blessings. As Isaiah said, God will dwell with him who is of a lowly and contrite spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. And this citizenship in the kingdom, this access to God in Christ which is granted now in the present, we are experiencing that blessing now in a real way. It will be experienced in all its fullness and bounty and majesty and glory when Christ comes again. And we who are the poor in spirit are welcomed into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Well, He will reign forever and ever and we with Him. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I close with this question. How can I, how can you, become poor in spirit? Hopefully we understand better what it means to be poor in spirit. Maybe you're asking, well, I, I want to be poor in spirit. I want to know the blessing that comes with being poor in spirit. I certainly want to inherit the kingdom of heaven. How can I become poor in spirit? Well, my friend, uh, you're asking for something that God alone can give you. We can sort of you know, dredge this up in ourselves. God must make us poor in spirit. He must show us certain things. He must work certain graces within us. But I can say this. Typically, if God is to make a man or woman poor in spirit, He will do three things. Number one, He will bring you to think more on God particularly in His glory, His majesty, and His holiness. God always appears greatest to them who are poor in spirit. It is they who have the highest thoughts of God and are most in awe of His splendor and His greatness and His transcendence. One of the things God will do if we are to be poor in spirit is He will acquaint us with Himself, His greatness, and His glory. Secondly, He will bring us to think more of our own sinfulness and unworthiness. And my friend, the gospel is not given in the first instance to give you a higher view of yourself. It's given to humble you and to give you an accurate view of yourself as a sinner. Of course, the effect of the gospel in those who believe is to raise them to higher experiences of glory and joy and immortality than we ever thought possible. 
But my friend, if you're a believer here this morning, and I could somehow uh, bring to you now an image of yourself, a manifestation of yourself from 10,000 years from now, you would be tempted to worship yourself. That's the glory that awaits all those who are in Christ. But the gospel in the first instance doesn't trump up our self-esteem. It tells us the truth about ourselves. If God is to make you poor in spirit, He will bring you to see yourself as a needy, frail, vile sinner, always and at all times in need of His grace. He will expose you to yourself in all your sinfulness and unworthiness. And that leads to the third thing He will typically do if He's to make a man or woman poor in spirit. He'll give them higher views of God, lower views of self. Then thirdly and finally, He will bring us to think more on the greatness of grace and the sweetness of Christ who receives all those who are truly poor in spirit. Those who are poor in spirit are not those without hope. They are the only people with hope. Uh, They see themselves as humble, lowly, sinful, needy, and they look upward to God for grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. Uh, The woman who was forgiven much, she knew where to go. Poor in spirit as she was, she came to Christ who could save her, who could forgive her. Uh, The publican who stood outside the temple courts and smote his breast, he knew, if I'm to have any mercy at all, I must go to the Lord and ask for it. Yes, he is so great and glorious and majestic. Yes, I'm a worm, a sinner. But there's plentiful redemption and grace, my friend, to be found in Christ. If the Lord will make us poor in spirit, He will revive in us hope that we can be saved through Jesus Christ. And so I say to you now, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Uh, I'm not aiming primarily uh, to help you today to have better self-esteem. That wasn't a goal I came with this morning. But rather out of love, I would prefer that you see yourself as you are. That you might know that if you come to the Lord a needy and broken sinner, He'll receive you and He'll save you. That if you are given to experience something of this poverty of spirit, knowing that you are naked and foul and empty with nothing to offer God, those are just the sort of people He's pleased to save, to forgive, to revive, to make blessed. To such ones He will give the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are emboldened to come to you, sinners as we are, because we know it is only such that you receive. You don't hear the prayers of the self-righteous. You don't receive the proud and the conceited, those who are arrogant in spirit. You're pleased to receive sinners like us. You're pleased to receive the humble. You're pleased to receive the contrite. You're pleased to receive those who have seen the wickedness and darkness of their own hearts. You're happy and glad to receive those who come with baggage and with shame and with real guilt. And as such, you're pleased to give grace, mercy, forgiveness, 
Oh, help all of us, Lord, to be encouraged that for the poor in spirit, there's salvation, that we don't need to entertain any pretense about ourselves. We don't need to construct narratives where we're always the hero and the righteous one. We can come to you the villains that we are, the criminals that we are, the wicked sinners that we are, and that we can experience at your hand mercy and grace and forgiveness. Please, Lord, we pray that you would give us all this poverty of spirit. To those of us who are your people, help us to love that posture, to love coming to you again and again afresh, looking for grace and help and enablement and mercy. Uh, Please, Lord, give to us uh, to know what it means and to experience what it is to be truly poor in spirit. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.